0: this section of scripture is, um, I think as I look back and remember, this is like the most um, the best sermon text that I've ever studied, that I've ever prepared for. Um, If you ever talk to Pat before he preaches and you ask him how it's going, he says this is the most important text in all of scripture. Like every Sunday that he's preaching, he says that. Um, It's always true, right? But um, yeah, so I don't think I can oversell God's word, um, but I know that I'm set in high expectations. This text has just so impacted me and changed how I view um, not just this piece of the story of Christ's um, condemnation and going to the cross, but how I view the world as a whole. So, um, with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we just ask That your spirit would be alive and working as he always is. Give me clarity of mind as I speak. Pray that these lips, um, by your grace, would not stammer. That the words would be clear. um, That we would understand your word and what what you have for us today. This is the most important text in all of scripture today. Hail, King Jesus, Amen. All right. As we look at this, um, perhaps it's foolish to start with such high expectations. But like I said, I think that um, I think that you guys will hear what um, a piece of what I've experienced over the last two weeks of study. So, um, three questions as we get. Um, into our text today. Question, the first question um, is what is the picture that John is trying to paint with this story? So as you read John 19, if you've been um, taking an abide card and reading along with us as we preach, um, hopefully the idea is that you, um, like the sponge is already wet. You've been spending some time in the Gospel of John 1 through 16 this week and you're acquainted with the text. The question we have is what is the story? What is John's intent? What is he really trying to get us to see with this section of scripture? Question two, what do we learn about God from this text? Reminds me of a quote by A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what does this text tell us about God? And then the last question um, is pretty obvious, but what am I supposed to do with this text? What is this supposed to change in my heart and in my life um, going forward? This afternoon, this week, this next year? And if, you, um, if you're like me, you recognize that I need to change, we need to change. Um, and sometimes as I look at that, there's the promise in scripture that God is working on me. He is, he is changing me. But sometimes when I look at my story of what God needs to change, I kind of feel like a, um, a Colorado CO, um, COD, sorry, DOT project. Like I'm like the I-25 corridor. It's like always under construction, always needs a rebuild. Um, on my own, I'm pretty underfunded, right? <laughs> so um, God's grace is unlimited, right? Kind of like taxes in some people's minds, okay? so. Um, If you're worried, if that makes you nervous, um, speaking bad about taxes, just buckle up because we've got some things to say about Caesar too. Um, We're just getting started. So would you stand with me? Let's start by reading this text. The first um, 15 and a half verses from John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. God, we ask your blessing on this word. Be with my words as we speak, as I speak, as we listen. May you Change us through this text. May we worship you as the eternal king that you are. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So question number one, what are the key points that John wants us to see in this text? In this 16 verses, we're only going through half of verse 16 and then we'll pick up with the other half of 16 going forward in January. We're about to break for our Advent season. John is bringing together in these verses all the characters with the parts that they have played in this story. And by this story, I'm not referring to just the Gospel of John, the woman at the well, the disciples, I'm talking about a much larger story, the story that God has been authoring that we read throughout all of scripture up to this point. John is bringing some of them to particular light. This text is another turning point in a long, long war to take the world back to its restored state, like it was before sin corrupted everything. Let's look at how John brings this story together in 11 statements or 11 phrases that deserve mention. So before we get into that, 11 points sounds like a lot. that's okay. I, I resonate with that. It is a lot. Um, when I was like a typical sermon that you'll hear me preach or that um, or how I was taught to preach is like you kind of summarize it three points or so and some subpoints, and it's like very um, kind of can be alliterated all those things. This text I feel like is so dense there's not really a way to do that. So we're going to move through 11 points no subpoints, points um, over the next 30 minutes or so. Read with me, because this is how we're going to go through the text. Verse 1, Jesus is flogged. So we see in this picture, Jesus, the teacher, this miracle worker, the one whom even demons obey, is beaten and bloodied by these Roman soldiers. And so if you read this story, pretend to be new, pretend like you don't know the end, we are surprised to hear the words of Isaiah in our mind is maybe disciples who know the Old Testament but have never connected Isaiah 53 to the Messiah. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. So now we have this testimony of the prophet Isaiah in our ears. John introduces him. We keep reading. Number two, a crown of thorns. Crowns are for kings, but thorns are for the human race cursed by Adam's sin. It's in ironic mockery that these soldiers crown Jesus. It's not a stretch for us to have a flashback to the beginning of the world that can be read about in Genesis chapter 3, where thorns were given as a result of Adam's failure in the garden. And now we read of these thorns being pushed into Jesus' scalp in a painful and ironic coronation of the king. Continuing on, a purple robe. They put a purple robe on Jesus. A purple robe, as we know, is for royalty, They are making a mockery of Jesus, but we know that it's fitting because Jesus is, in fact, king. In flagrant mockery, the soldiers put a purple robe on Jesus as a sign of his kingship. To them, it's a joke. To us, we see that there's truth veiled in that. They're certainly mocking the Jewish king in order to shame him. And of course, they are ignorant of Christ's kingdom that is altogether different from the kings of this world. Jesus has said in the preceding chapters, My kingdom is not from this world. So his type of kingship is also foreign. Christ's manner of conquest is radically different than anything that the world has yet seen. Number four, they acknowledge Jesus with a salute. Hail, King of the Jews, and then a strike. This is continued mockery. God's favorite, as you read through scripture, God's favorite literary devices are things like irony and foreshadowing, where he prophesies things that you might not be able to guess how that would be fulfilled. We can imagine that the soldiers are performing some sort of salute here, as if Jesus is king, but then ending it by a slap. Number five, Pilate calls out Jesus as he brings him out and he says, behold the man. And if you're observing this, you reminisce of all the times that Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, this reference back to Daniel chapter seven. Jesus refers to himself as son of man, claiming in that phrase to be the ancient of days to be the second person of the Godhead, to be Yahweh incarnate. And out of Pilate's own mouth, this comes into sharp focus as he is presented. Though bloody and disrespected, not resembling a king of the earth, Pilate says, behold this man. And then pronounces, number six, I find no guilt in him. Pilate pronounces Jesus' innocence which takes us back to Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So as tensions are rising, Pilate takes Jesus back inside and he questions him, where are you from? That is the right question for Pilate to ask at this point, is it not? Where are you from? We see from verse 8 that Pilate is afraid and it seems, you start to, I start to empathize a little bit with Pilate at this point, actually. He's terrified because he is realizing that he is on the front lines of a cosmic battle. Something is going on here that is much, much bigger than simply solving this Jewish problem in this distant Roman province where Pilate is tasked to keep peace. The answer to the question, where are you from, of course, is that Jesus is from above. From before the beginning of time, he is co-eternal with God the Father. He is the creator of the world and has come to this place to wage a war of wars against God's enemies. That's the answer to the question. But Jesus remains silent. Pilate pushes him again. and his pushing, don't you know who I am? That's a standard response of earthly political power, isn't it? Don't you know who I am? I've got the power to release you or to kill you. Treat me with respect, Jesus. Jesus responds with this posture of what seems like comfort for Pilate. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't defend himself. He just informs Pilate. You would have no authority if it wasn't given to you. Jesus is not overcome by these soldiers. He is submitting himself to this treatment. And again, the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 comes to our mind. He is willingly putting himself under these soldiers' control. And then in verse verse 12, as we continue reading, John draws this line really, really clearly. The age-old cosmic conflict has landed here in Jerusalem. Your choices are Jesus or Caesar. And this is what we can't miss in this text today. This cosmic conflict is not simply just between Jesus and these Jewish leaders who didn't want him to be the Messiah because they didn't want to give up their earthly political power, their influence. It's not like that. Something much, much bigger is going on. And we can miss it if we think that this is just happening in terms of the political gamesmanship of these high priests, these officers of the Jewish religion, and Jesus, this guy who comes kind of out of nowhere and challenges their authority, challenges their interpretation. But that's not what's going on. Something much bigger. Jesus or Caesar. You see, Caesar, this would be really familiar to us if we lived in first century with these people. Caesar is understood by the Romans to be Zeus incarnate. Caesar is understood to be the God's representative of themselves on earth. And we know, like Jesus' followers believed, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is Yahweh incarnate. And here they are, squaring off. You have Jesus flogged, bloody, beaten. He is deep behind enemy lines. And about to be abandoned by his father on the cross. So we see glimpses of this cosmic war throughout scripture. Um, If you go back to last summer, summer of 2022, we were going through the book of Acts and we see Paul um, as he's going to the Gentiles. There's this little girl who annoys him because she's demon possessed and she keeps following him around and like taunting him. And what you see is this glimpse of this cosmic war. Every time Jesus or any of the apostles cast out a demon, it's far more obvious that there's spiritual warfare going on. Yahweh God has authority over demonic forces. They are not more powerful than he is. And so in this moment, we see this revealed. There is a cosmic battle between King Jesus and this other gods. And Pilate does not want to be stuck in the middle of that battle. Understandably so. But he can't get out. So the Jewish leaders force Pilate to pick a side. Verse 12, they say, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. They don't give Pilate an option to let Jesus free. Without opposing Caesar. Number nine, is a shift in the conversation. John continues. Now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. We're in verse 14. So John seemingly shifts our focus away from this cosmic clash of forces, away from what um, seems to be this like, epic rivalry, and he starts talking about the Passover. It just so happens that at this very moment, the Jewish people are about to celebrate an event that goes back to Egypt. Another time that they were subservient to a foreign power. So the Passover, we probably recognize as this Jewish feast that goes all the way back to the last plague. You remember Moses, the children of Israel are in Egypt, they're in captivity. Moses has told Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh has said, he said, no, I don't think so. God sends plague after plague after plague. Sometimes Pharaoh says, yes, and then changes his mind. You can read about this last portion of the text in, in Exodus 11 and 12. We're not going to read all that today. This Passover note, um, it first seems like just like a marker of where they're at, what time of year it is or something like that. And then you make the connection that Jesus is this Passover lamb. And as we remember about those plagues, they were not simply miracles to prove that God was God, but as these plagues were happening in Egypt, they corresponded to Egyptian deities to embarrass them, to shame them. And one by one, God wore down and shamed the gods of Egypt. So, this is actually not a shift away from the cosmic battle scene, but it's a step deeper into the war, room, the war room of Yahweh. See, he's not just going to embarrass the kingdom of darkness and humiliate them like he did when he sent plagues to Egypt. No, God is about to tear down the wall that is between Yahweh and his people. John points out that this Passover feast happens to be happening. It just happens to be going on at the same time that Jesus is gonna be crucified. This is when we see that Jesus is not like other kings because Yahweh is not like other gods. Other gods throughout history, throughout the Old Testament specifically, they required that humans be sacrificed to them and here we have this picture as Jesus is about to be condemned, about to go to the cross, that he is willing to be sacrificed for us. And these other deities are not just imagined figments of our imagination. They're not like nothing. They are real deities, they are real superpowers, but they are inferior to Yahweh. Paul makes this clear to us in 1 Corinthians 8. Paul says that idol worship is demon worship. And once you read that and make that connection between worshiping idols, idols are just a face of demons and other supernatural forces, you reread the whole of scripture and see that this book often references other gods. And they are not able to overpower Yahweh God, but they are real. The supernatural rebels are about to kill Yahweh's son and thus to cut off, in their minds, to cut off Yahweh's presence on earth. And the domain of darkness is celebrating early with all this mockery of Jesus that we've read about. This leads us to the next point. Number 10 in verse 14, Pilate says, in this final statement of irony, behold your king. And the Jewish leader's response, representative of Israel, God's people, who he has kept alive. He has saved them from being exterminated over and over again, over really thousands of years, going all the way back to Abraham. They say, we have no king but Caesar. This is Israel's formal rejection of King Jesus. In this statement, the leadership of the Old Covenant Israel rejects their God yet again and swears allegiance to Caesar. Hail Caesar. In this moment, they have fulfilled a parable that Jesus told back in Matthew 21. I'm going to read that now. Handful of verses that's, I think, insightful. This is one of those Pieces where Jesus speaks in a parable. They listen. The chief priest, it says here, they they understood he was talking about them but didn't totally understand God's strategy. Matthew 21, verse 33. I'm just gonna read it. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death, and let out the vineyard to other tenants, who will give him the first who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So what do we learn about God from this text as we've, as we've walked through it? We see this um, picture laid out, this cosmic battle scene between forces that are far, far bigger than just Pilate and Jewish leaders. What do we learn about God? The first thing is that God has kept his plan of salvation a secret. We often refer back to prophecies fulfilled, um, and that's true. But we have this huge advantage of hindsight. It's easy to know what's going to happen when you're, like, reading a history book. See, in Isaiah 53, these references in the text, are not explicitly clear that they are referencing the Messiah because the Messiah terminology doesn't actually occur in that passage. So it's not really clear what Isaiah is talking about until Jesus comes and then he suffers and dies, even though he's innocent. If Satan and his demonic henchmen knew God's plan of taking this broken world back to its perfect state, If they knew that that plan depended on Jesus' death and resurrection, they would have worked really hard to keep him alive and maybe make him a lesser king. In fact, Satan tried that. Early in Jesus' ministry, he goes out to the wilderness to be tempted and the devil makes him an offer and says, you swear allegiance to me and I'll make you a king. And Jesus says, no. In short, we don't have time to go through that whole text. See, this is a cosmic war between Jesus, the king, the second person of Yahweh, and his enemies. Number two, first of all, we learn that God keeps his, has kept his plan of salvation. We've, he's kept it a secret. Number two, Jesus is a king like no other. There is no other king like Jesus. He, though divine, subjects himself to a full human life. We know In this world, because we, many of us are employers or employees, we know that only the best managers leave the office and come down to the factory floor. Only the best owners come out to the field to see what it's actually like out there for their employees. Only the best military leaders know what it's really like on the front lines. Only King Jesus kneels to wash the feet of his inferior followers and it is unheard of for a king to sacrifice everything for the epic failures of his people let us suspend for a moment attempt to do this suspend our knowledge of the end of this story when we read this story like the disciples experienced it we are waiting In these moments, we're waiting for Jesus to work a miracle. If you've seen this man, Jesus, turn water into wine, cast out demons, feed thousands of people with a couple baskets of food, we've seen him walk on the water and control the wind, overpowering a couple Roman soldiers should be just another Friday. Even convincing the Jewish leaders that Pilate is correct and that he is without sin and should not be killed shouldn't really be that difficult. How many times has Jesus left these leaders, these religious leaders, speechless? He's done it throughout this book. And so as as a disciple, you're sitting there waiting for him to really just get them. They're going to be so embarrassed that they flogged the king of the universe. And that doesn't happen. This has to be humanity's worst moment. Worse than the fall. Yahweh, the creator, the deliverer, the provider, the protector, the faithful husband, is put to death by the same humanity whom he has created, delivered, provided for, rescued from extinction over and over and over. In return for his faithfulness, the Jewish leaders reject him with full-throated allegiance to another king. Jesus is a king like no other. And as we continue, we see God is the ultimate storyteller. Nobody else does this. He is totally unique. It's one thing to write a good story, like on our, on our human, earthly level. It's one thing to write a good story. It's a whole nother thing to tell that story without giving away the ending, right? If you've ever read a story that you already know how it ends, if you've ever read, read that to your children, like, I have a hard time. I give it away. I got no poker face, right? um, You'll hear in my body language, in my inflection, when like when i start reading about um, edmund early on in the storyline the witch in the wardrobe like you know that he's kind of the brother that we don't like right i can't hold it back i can give other examples god is this ultimate storyteller he keeps these things secretive and it is marvelous in our eyes there are not words to describe the perfection Of God's storytelling. Should we work for a thousand years, the most creative among us could never dream a story like this, let alone tell it. It's not a tragedy because in the end, the good guy wins. Yet it keeps us on our toes to the very end, even up to this day, this very day. Dustin and I were chatting about um, our Advent series coming up starting next week through um, the end of the year we're gonna stop in the Gospel of John we're gonna spend five weeks um, preaching through the Advent celebrating the incarnation where Jesus comes from heaven God's eternal Son comes and is born as a baby and one of the illustrations that we've been talking about is like um, a chessboard and I'm not a chess player I know how to play like I know well enough to lose at it but I'm not like I'm not a chess player But I know enough that your opening move is not to take your king and put him out in front of the ponds. All right? Only God can do that. Jesus said to them Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is a marvelous thing in our eyes. Colossians 2, verses 14 through 15. Just a glimpse of this, Paul says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this, talking about the record of debt, this, he, Jesus, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the language of a king who has triumphed over his enemies. So what am I supposed to do with all this? Question number three. So what? What do we do? Well, from the beginning, turn back all the way back to Genesis, you see that the enemy's tactics, God's adversary, have been pretty consistent. First, disbelief, and then disobedience. Don't believe what God said is true, and don't do what God said to do. So the alternative in that same respective order is to believe and obey. Believe the gospel. Two pieces of the gospel. All right? The gospel is something we can preach about forever, and and we will continue to do that. We're a gospel-centered church. Two pieces of the gospel. One, Jesus is king. This is this royal proclamation. Whether you like it or not, he's not king for you if you want him and not king for somebody else. He's king over everybody, all right? That's the good news. Even for you who have not accepted him as your king yet, he's still king. You can't do anything about it. The world is a better place because of Jesus' lordship over everything. And then the other one, not number two, Jesus is the Passover lamb. He is your only hope of salvation. He is your only ticket out of Egypt. You can't save yourself. You need someone else to save you. So there's this growing statement in American politics today, probably more on the um, conservative side. Nobody is coming to save you. I've seen this kind of growing lately. Nobody is coming to save you. This is a response to the current situation we find ourselves in in this country. Um, It rightly understands that Caesar or whoever is sitting in the government civil seat is a cruel and impotent tyrant incapable of fixing anything. So don't place your faith and hope in Caesar. This statement, nobody is coming to save you, offers this hope you need to save yourself. If you know yourself well enough, that is no hope at all. (laughs) Nobody is coming to save you because somebody already has and he is your only hope. Like Pilate, you do not have a bunch of viable options. You have two choices. It's King Jesus, Hail King of the Jews, or Caesar. We can couch these that same choice in heaven or hell. The list goes on. It's King Jesus or Caesar. He is the Passover lamb, your only hope of salvation. Psalm 2, verses four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is a messianic psalm written by David in reference to this eternal Messiah. Jesus is king. And if I may be so bold as to point out, Caesar's kingdom is confined to museums and history books now. (coughs) Jesus' kingdom seems to be much, much healthier. Number two, believe the gospel and then number two, obey. That's a result of belief. You believe and then you obey. If you really believe, you will obey he said to them, Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments. Depend all the law and the prophets. I summarize it that way because we don't have time for another you know, 11 commandments. Um, if we see God as the brilliant, creative strategist that he is, willing to suffer immense pain for you and me, a king who has not separated himself from us, but who wants to be close to us, God's dwelling places with man. He's not in an ivory tower, untouchable, and unwilling to get his uniform dirty. If we see God this way, we see a king who is willing to suffer and die to make everything that is sad become untrue. Behold our God. Seated on his throne, let us adore him with our thoughts, with our scheduled priorities, with our words to one another, and our words to those who have not yet said, Hail Jesus. This terrible thing, the death of God's Son at the hands of God's people, is actually a marvelous thing. It's ugly, it's horrific, but it's marvelous because only through this secret salvation plan is God able to save humanity, able to satisfy his own holiness and utterly shame his enemies. Now I know I'm skipping ahead, but I can't pretend that I don't know the end of this story. We won't be back till John, into John for a couple weeks. So let's transition on this note of hope. As this battle continues, Here and now today in this world, we will see those who, like us, were on Caesar's side, but now have repented and bowed the knee to Jesus. They do this when we share the proclamation that Caesar is dead and gone, and Jesus was dead, but now is alive. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For the sacrifice of your son that we did not deserve. You are a good God, totally unique in your storytelling, your story writing, and we acknowledge that the effort and creativity and beauty that you've put into this big story, you have been so kind as to extend that to our individual lives. Give us grace, God, to respond in worship to you in the way that you have directed my life, our individual lives, that you have called us out of a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. May you be praised forever and ever because yours is all of the glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.